Our general subject is <clears throat> practicing the church life under the heavenly ministry of Christ. In the first message last night, we focused on Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where Paul charges us to seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And the things which are above are everything related to Christ in his present heavenly ministry. Every aspect of who and what he is and of what he is doing. Then we want to learn to set our mind on them and to experience Christ as our life, hidden with Christ in God. This morning, we came directly to Hebrews, and we took a little walk, uh, a rather slow walk, pausing to observe a certain very precious aspects of the present Christ, who right now seemingly is so far away, even higher than the heavens, but he's joined to us by the transmission of the life-giving spirit. So he is our great high priest, bearing us before God. He is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, ministering bread and wine, the process God to us. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is bearing us right now before the face of God. Amen. We have no way of, of knowing how valuable, how precious each one of us is to the Father and to the Son. There's a prophecy in Isaiah, it might be in chapter 8, that was fulfilled in the Lord's ascension, in which he ascended, and he said, Behold, I and the children whom you have given me. So when he ascended, he did not ascend alone, although his status is unique. He could say, Father, I bring all of those that I redeemed and brought forth through my resurrection. And now as the priest, he's bearing all of us on his heart that is in his love and on his shoulder that is in his strength. And we emphasize he is the minister in the heavenly tabernacle, the true tabernacle. So he is in the Holy of Holies, in this realm beyond space-time. He is fully aware of our situation, personally and corporately, all the time. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is merciful in his humanity, 
He is faithful in his divinity. He's our advocate. What a wonderful intercessor he is. He will save us to the uttermost. He is ministering heaven as a condition of life into us right now. The heavenly life is flowing into us with grace, power, and authority. This morning, it seemed pleasing to the Lord and the ministering spirit to touch us and to care for us, I believe, in a very personal way. I was really moved in my inner being when our dear brother came to the microphone and said, I could go home now after this message. This is what I came for. The Lord met my need. And I myself was touched by the point which says, Christ as our minister is caring for our need and also carrying out God's economy. We as mere humans simply are not able much of the time, especially during difficult times, to see the connection between our situation, especially if it's one of suffering and loss, and whatever God is doing to carry out his economy. But whatever we do involves the body of which we are members and is related to God's eternal economy. I, like you, have many questions. I don't mean to challenge the Lord with them. I just would appreciate if sooner or later I could get answers to some of these questions. Why this and why that? Well, the only hope is that sometime during the kingdom or in eternity, the questions will be answered. But I've got a little thought about this. I'm wondering, when I meet the Lord, I might forget all the questions. <laughs> on the other hand, on the Lord's part, I think he would like to care for us when we're in another realm and would like to unveil to us, to review with each one of us the journey he took us on and then show us, do you see how everything fit together, how everything was connected? Do you see why I arranged this? Do you see why... I allowed this. Well, the Lord is listening to me, speculating like this, but he knows the depth of our need. And he ministers to that. But we need to realize that however precious and profound and touching and personal is his care, The object of his love is the church. A corporate person. We were created 
like this. We are created humanly to live with others. We were not created to live in solitary confinement. In Hebrews 12, we're told that when the Lord was on the cross, he endured the, he endured the cross, suffering the shame, for the joy that was set before him. When he was on the cross, suffering in a way that only the Father can understand. Suffering not only physically, but suffering as the fire of God's judgment burned in his inward parts. Only the Father can comprehend the depth of the Son's suffering for our redemption. But there was the joy set before the Lord. As far as I know, we're not explicitly told in the scriptures what this joy is. I can just tell you what I think it might be. I believe the joy set before him was his wife, his bride, the church as his counterpart. What else could be his joy? What else could be the fulfillment of the desire of his heart? This view is supported, I think, by Ephesians 5, where we're told that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the joy set before him, using the language of Matthew 13, the pearl of great price for which he sold everything, surely was the church, his body, the house, the kingdom, but above all, the bride. When the Lord Jesus comes back openly at the end of the Great Tribulation, he will come as the Son of Righteousness, reigning in righteousness, coming in glory. But when he comes secretly, for those who Await him and watch for him as the morning star. He's coming as the bridegroom. This is his longing. His deepest longing as he's ministering in the heavens. He wants to come, not first, to inherit the kingdom, to inherit the earth, to deal with the enemy, to replace human government with the manifested kingdom, to deal with unrighteousness. He wants to come first before the tribulation for his bride. He wants to come as the bridegroom. 
We have to put all the portions of the New Testament together in relation to any matter to see the truth in a balanced way. John said, refer to him, the apostle, uh, John the Baptist, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. So I do believe we're touching the Lord's heart even at this moment because he is ministering in so many ways based on so many aspects of his person. But the object, the joy, is her, the bride. He wants the church to be built up as the body because that is the preparation of the bride. He wants to come back in a secret way and rapture the bride. Then, as the great tribulation is taking place on the earth, he with the overcomers who are his bride have begun the wedding feast. I believe this is the joy set before him. Our Christian life, I would even say our human life, and our church life are deepened, uplifted, and enriched when we see the connection between the practical local church life and the desire of the Lord's heart to get married. To get married. I ask for covering for her and for me. That is why during a meeting to honor the Lord and to anticipate his wedding, our wedding meeting, we sang a hymn of love to the Lord, written for that occasion. And the last stanza said, We're happy for you, Lord, our lovely bridegroom. We rejoice in this romance divine, awaiting the time when we hear you declare, this beautiful bride is now mine. So as I share this, I dare not say I have assurance because it's not explicitly revealed, but I'm reasonably assured that the joy set before him, mentioned in Hebrews 12 too, is his wife is his bride. Everything was for her. So in the light of this joy set before him, we want to consider aspects of the church as revealed in Hebrews. The word church is used in this book twice. In chapter 2, verse 12, there's a quotation from Psalm 22. In the midst of the church, I sing hymns of praise to you. In 1223, we have this expression, the church of the firstborn. 
But there are six aspects of the church. Five are on the outline, but I'll insert another. Which are rather mysterious and in many respects little known. But if we are to live a church life that is pleasing to the Lord, that is the building up of the body of Christ, that will issue in the preparation of the bride, we need to know the aspects of the church. Then the fourth message can be on the living of this church life, the practice of this church life, under the divine priesthood of Christ. We'll see the priesthood that swallows up every aspect of death in our being and in our experience. But as usual, before I come to the outline, I want to point out two things regarding the church. The first is the nature of the church. And it's the nature both of the universal church, the body of Christ, and the nature of a local church as an expression of the body. Then the second matter concerns the function of the church, universally as the body and locally as an expression of the body. Okay, the nature of the church. In its nature, the church is the mingling of God and man. The mingling of divinity with humanity. That's what the church is in its nature. And one of our, I would say, greatest responsibilities, especially if we are bearing responsibility in the church, is to preserve its nature. And I do know from my particular aspect of serving with Brother Lee and my study of the ministry, Brother Lee's greatest concern for the recovery is that we would lose its nature and become part of the religion of Christianity. That we would repeat that history and become part of that institution. So we need to know the nature of the church is a mingling of God with man, of divinity with humanity, and we see this first in Christ himself, the God-man is the complete God mingled with a perfect man. The divinity and the humanity cannot be separated, but they remain distinct. And a third thing, something neither divine nor human was not produced. Jesus is the mingling of God and man. 
This is the very nature of his person. One person with two natures. The church is the enlargement, the expansion, the multiplication of this person. In John 12, 24, he spoke of himself as a grain of wheat falling into the ground to produce many grains. Are not the many grains the same in nature as the original grains? Certainly. We are the many grains. The many sons of God are the same in nature as the firstborn son of God. The church is the corporate Christ. The church is composed of all those born of God. They have the life and nature of God. So one thing the Lord is ministering about right now in his heavenly ministry is that we would experience more mingling of divinity and humanity. Until there is a full expression of this, and here's a mystery. The high peak of the divine revelation is that God became man so that in God's salvation in Christ, man may become God in life and nature, but not in the Godhead, not as an object of worship. We've been born of God. He's divine. So in some sense, we're also divine. But we may say the paradox or the apparent contradiction is the more we become divine, the more human we become. I like to tell this story of a dear brother, I believe, who at an early age went to the Lord in victory, Brother Don Looper. I learned this from my daughter who was there. He and many others were at a saint's home for a meal. And the sister serving made it known we have this flavor ice cream for dessert, you know. And one young sister at that time, wanting to be really spiritual and say spiritual things, she said, Brother Don, in the New Jerusalem, we won't be eating ice cream. He said, he said, with affection, he would say, Sister, I know. But we're not in the New Jerusalem yet. <laughs> and I would like some ice cream. <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry to say, if I were there, I would add, especially if it's Jamoka Amen Fudge. <laughs> so we are becoming humanly divine, Jesusly human. The more Christ increases in us, 
the more we will be like him in his humanity and divinity is expressed in our humanity. This is the nature of the church life. There is nothing like it on the earth. Everything on the earth is human and earthly. The function of the church, simply stated, is to express Christ. That's its function. It's the body of Christ. Or it's the new man constituted with Christ. So every aspect of the church life functions to express Christ. <clears throat> this is why certain things will start happening to us soon after we enter into the church life. What certain things? Well, to say that the church in its function is the expression of Christ, that's not a mere word. These words have to be worked out experientially and be manifested as a reality. Our soul is the organ of expression. Our spirit is the organ for contacting God, receiving God, and containing God. Our soul is the organ of expression. So the only way Christ can be expressed in the church is for him to shine out from our spirit through our soul. The situation is, when we believed into the Son of God, and received eternal life through regeneration, our spirit was born of God and was mingled with God to be divine and human. But our soul remained the same as that of an unbeliever. And souls differ in their psychological makeup in degree and they differ due to the effect of culture that constituted them in a certain way. So here we are, this kind of motley group of people, all children of God in our spirit. But God's goal is that this church would express Christ the soul is the organ of expression, but uh-oh, right now, the soul is expressing the self. So Christ in his heavenly ministry knows the situation. Here's local church A with 53 dear saints of different ages and different backgrounds, and everyone's got a soul. And every soul is expressing the self. And that, if you read Matthew 16, is most unpleasant. 
So one object of the Lord's heavenly ministry is to supply us with life and grace so our soul is transformed from glory to glory. On the other hand, he's ministering to enlighten us and motivate us to show us what the self is. A rather early book, I think from 1965, the messages are published in the book, The Heavenly Vision. In that book is a chapter plus some material in another chapter on the vision of the self. So what eventually needs to happen to all of us as we are enjoying the Lord in the church life and enjoying being together, every one of us is in the process of transformation. On the positive side, more of the divine element is dispensed into our soul so that we're transformed by the renewing of the mind. On the contrary side, the self is not tolerated by the body. The self is the enemy of the body. So eventually we need to grow and enter the third stage of the experience of life and learn what the self is and become willing to deny it, to say no. The saints are not going to meet myself when we're serving together. This is the last thing I want to do. So based upon these two foundational matters, the nature of the church, the mingling of God and man, and the function of the church to express Christ through a being transformed soul. I need to add one other point to the church's function to express Christ. We need to put together 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. With the Lord's word in Matthew 17, 22 and 23, where the Lord says, the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be perfected into one. This is the oneness in the divine glory. The oneness in the divine glory is the oneness in which we all are expressing Christ and no one is expressing the self. Okay. We have not arrived at this point yet. And it's normal to have new ones enter in through our gospel preaching or the Lord shepherds them in through his shepherding. So we will always be in different stages. And we love one another and bear one another in the different stages. But the Lord is ministering and the Lord's goal is to have 
a corporate expression of himself in glory, with this glory shining out from our spirit through our soul, and no self. No one is expressing the self. The Lord will not stop his ministry. His ministry will not stop when he has the overcomers. There will be a thousand years during which he will need to perfect millions upon millions of immature believers. Only at the end of the age of the kingdom will every believer be matured and perfected. Then there will be the new Jerusalem whose outstanding characteristic as the bride is having the glory of God. Now, between the time and a little before nine, we'll go through the outline and to get a view of six aspects of the church in Hebrews, every aspect bears the nature of the church, the mingling of God and man. And every aspect is part of the function of the church to express Christ. One, the church is a living composition of the many sons of God who are the many brothers of Christ. Now, I don't know if there are any <clears throat> young ladies here or young sisters uh, taking certain humanities courses under militant feminists who are out to demolish the patriarchy. And they may say, many sons, what about daughters? Many brothers, what about sisters? Well, in God's point of view, all the believers are children of God, maturing to be sons, male and female alike. But God is fair, so all the, the females will be sons, and all the males will be part of the bride, <laughs> and part of the wife. And so we, we are not going to accommodate the language of the Bible to match anybody's ideology to appease them. So if there's a militant feminist here, I don't want to aggravate you, but I would have to say, I pray you will become a son of God. <laughs> and after you become a son of God, you pray for me that I'll become part of the bride of Christ. Okay? So that's for the sake of anyone under the influence of that who are the many brothers of Christ, brought forth in his resurrection. See, we read the verses. He's bringing many sons into glory. He who, is sanctif he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all out of one source. For this cause, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So these sons and these brothers 
are mingled persons. The mingling is here. God is our divine Father. Now, if you wonder why he's not called the Divine Mother, I suggest ask the Father, okay? <laughs> I'm referring this one to the Father. Actually, we do have a mother. You know who our mother is? The New Jerusalem, according to Galatians 4. God is our Divine Father, and we are his divine sons, born of his divine life with his divine nature. We need to see this. You have the same life in your spirit that God has. You partake of the same nature of God. Have you ever seen a human baby born of a male and female who wasn't the possessor of a human life and the human nature, there's no such thing. God is divine. When he begets children, they're divine. They're already human, so they're divine in life and nature as well as human. Okay, B, as the many brothers of Christ, we are the same as the firstborn son, not the same as the only begotten son. The only begotten Son is in the Godhead, possessing deity only. We're not the same as the only begotten Son, because we don't partake of the Godhead. But God gave his only begotten Son, <coughs> he became the Son of Man. In resurrection, the Son of Man became the firstborn Son, the Son of God, whose humanity is now divine. So he is the firstborn, and we are his many brothers, and we are the same. He is divine and human, because he was divine first and became human, and we are human and divine. The best human marriage is a human marriage that's humanly divine and divinely human. Several years ago, some brothers suggested we pray for strong spiritual marriages. Okay, but I don't know what that is. I don't know what a strong marriage is, really. I don't know what a spiritual marriage is. I don't think I want one, actually. But divinely human, wow. That means your married life is the same as the church life? You mean when you live your married life, you're living the church life at home? There's no difference? I think Aquila and Priscilla lived like this. I'm looking forward to meeting them. I hope we can have a conversation. No doubt there'll be some kind of common language we can communicate. And I'm, I'd like to ask, I said, I got the impression, Priscilla and Aquila, you too had an excellent marriage. Otherwise, how could the church in one city after another meet in your home? 
<coughs> as soon as the saints <coughs> come into your home, <coughs> they sense a heavenly atmosphere expressed in a human way. So we, in the church life, we're becoming humanly divine and divinely human. The most divinely human sister I ever met was Sister Lee. I happened to be around when I went to work with Brother Lee. I never saw her without joy. When she realized one morning that I was kind of discouraged by the attacks on the Lord's recovery, she spoke a firm word. She said, Brother, the Lord is still on the throne. Yes. Full of joy. So human, even at 95. So our church life, consisting of the sons and the brothers that include males and females, is a life in which we humans are becoming divine and people meet Jesusly human people. It's a unique species on the earth. See, the church is an organism with two lives and two natures combined and mingled together. The church is altogether a matter of life, the divine life and the uplifted, resurrected human life. And the Lord, in his heavenly ministry, is praying concerning our humanity, that it would be uplifted, that it would be resurrected, that it would be Jesusly human. And he will place us long-term in certain environments, precisely that he may work on us to become divinely human. And that will be our testimony, our expression. The church is altogether a matter of life. The divine and uplifted, resurrected human life, the church has two natures. The human nature and the divine nature. Thus the church is both human and divine. So the one who is divinely human is ministering himself to us all the time to make us humanly divine. That's the church, the corporate living of these humanly divine persons. Okay, two, the church is a corporate partnership with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partners of Christ. If indeed we hold fast the beginning of the assurance of firm, beginning of the assurance firm to the end. Okay, we're partners. 
So we may use a business metaphor. God has a corporation. I'm not talking about incorporation. The name of it is Jehovah and Sons in Incorporated. <laughs> and we have been brought into partnership in Christ through regeneration. So the church is a corporate partnership with Christ. The goal of God's operation in the universe is to accomplish a glorious expression of himself. The firstborn son is God's appointed heir, and we, the many sons, have been saved to be his joint heirs, inheriting not only salvation, but all things with him. Th this is quite inspiring. We are heirs. The son is the unique heir. He's inheriting the whole earth, everything in God's economy, and his desire is, I'd like to have a huge number of co-heirs, my partners, and share the inheritance with them. So when he comes to inherit the whole earth, he will share the rule over the earth with his partners. And here I bring in a little dream of mine. I just share this in a kind of human way. It's what I hope happens in China at the start of the millennium. Okay. I don't think God needs my advice. <laughs> so I won't offer it to him, but I will express my hope. In China, especially in, in the central part of the 20th century, the two top leaders were Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai. They were the top. Watchman Nee, witnessly, considered nothing. Watchman Nee imprisoned, accused of being counter-revolutionary. Witnessly still labeled officially in a negative way. They're considered nothing. So for a period of time, China in this age was under Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai. Wouldn't it be gloriously, wonderfully righteous if in the millennium, what do you know? Watchman Nee from the south, Witness Lee in the north. How about these two are co-kings over China for a thousand years? Were they not partners of Christ? Don't you have the sense that their whole ministry was a co-working with Christ on behalf of Christ and the church? So we also will be heirs, joint heirs, inheriting all things with him. See, since Christ as the firstborn son is God's appointed heir, and we as the many sons of God are his joint heirs, we are Christ's partners. So the church is the corporate partnership. We have a common endeavor with Christ himself, and that is to fulfill Genesis 126, to express God with his image, 
to represent him with authority, to recover the earth for the kingdom of God. As Christ's partners, we share in his anointing and cooperate with him in his operation to reach the goal of God's economy, the glorious expression of the divine being. So the more we are transformed in soul, the more we are partners with Christ. Paul said something both encouraging and disheartening, I think, in Philippians 2. He told them he will send Timothy to them. He said, I have no one like souls who will genuinely care for what concerns you. For all seek their own things, not the things of Christ Jesus. It's quite sad to see saints who come into the church life, remain in the church life, maybe for half a century. When they're young, of course, they're zealous. They care for the Lord's things. Then the complexities of life enter in, they're into middle age, and their inner being is occupied with their own things, more than anything else. So at times I've been asked the question, during question and response times, what's, how, do we, how do we have a balance between the church life and all the things of our human life? You have to listen to the response to the end, I hope. I said, I, I never had the thought, never occurred to me to inquire about balance. But since you asked, here's balance. Seek first the kingdom of God Amen. and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first. Seek first. The partners, the real partners, they have human needs like everybody else. But they are joined in soul with the senior partner, the firstborn son of God. Timothy's soul was very different from Paul's. He had a very different disposition, not nearly as bold and aggressive as Paul but he was like-souled. So he was Paul's partner in the work. And Paul knew that he could send Timothy, and Timothy would not act on his own. He would make known Paul's ways in the church and care for them. The Lord needs partners. Anyone who's considered a co-worker should be a partner in this sense, and the church is the corporate partnership. The aspect that I didn't have on the outline is in chapter 3, verse 6, which says that we are the house of God. That means the place where he dwells. And in his house, God has satisfaction and rest. So the church as the enlargement of the mingling of God with man is where God lives. Do you realize both you and God have the same address? 
He lives in the church. We live in the church. To be exact, he lives in the mingled spirit. We live in the mingled spirit. So in a very real sense, the omnipresent God localizes himself. And he actually makes home in local churches in a way he doesn't make himself at home in Anaheim Stadium or any other kind of thing. The church is his house. Okay, three on the outline. The church, the enlargement of Christ, is the Sabbath rest. Okay, this is mysterious. But it's a strong thought in Hebrews. Let me read the points and then try to expand. The individual Christ is God's Sabbath. And the church is the enlargement of Christ. Therefore, the church is also God's Sabbath rest. After God completed his work, he rested. He could rest because there was man with image and dominion. That's the picture in creation. God brought the people of Israel into the good land, which in Hebrews is referred to as the rest. There they would build the temple for God's expression and the kingdom for God's representation. Christ himself is the good land, Christ himself is the temple, and Christ himself is the kingdom. We know that from Luke 17. So Christ himself is the realm of rest. The church is meant to be the Sabbath rest for God today, the place where he has rest because here, his purpose is accomplished. And the point B helps clarify this. The church is God's satisfaction and rest because the church has his habitation for his expression and representation. There was some quite powerful prayer with a group of brothers before the meeting tonight. And I feel free to mention one aspect of the prayer. And I want to indict, to expose and indict generically a pernicious and destructive practice that has been widespread in this area. And that has been a gross and destructive misuse of authority. I remember many years ago receiving a phone call from a brother who had been in the lead in Toronto. And he used this expression. He said, brother, our back has been just whiplashed to nothing. Just authority. How dare anyone claim I have authority I can speak this way. I can speak that way. Any church that is under such an influence of that is not a church at rest. 
God can never rest. But there is such a misrepresentation and gross abuse of his authority. Anyone who is a deputy authority, a representative of God, does the exact opposite. Would never speak that way. Would never openly humiliate anyone. Would never lash anyone. The Lord is looking for a group of believers where he is expressed and where his kingdom, his authority is manifested. When all the brothers bearing responsibility know, the Lord Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You don't have any. The best you can do is allow me to flow through you. And others meet me. And when they meet me as authority, they meet me as life, love, and light. That's what they meet. That's what they meet. And we pray earnestly and join the Lord in his intercession that he will recover every wounded soul. Everyone who's been wounded by the whiplash of so-called authority. That in every wound, the oil of the Spirit and the wine of life will be poured in. And they can come into the realm of rest. And at least in miniature, the Lord will have in the local church a place. He dwells. He's at home. He's being expressed here. He's being represented here, and he knows this realm has to grow. But this is the church life, a Sabbath rest for God. Four, to come to the church is to come to the new covenant and to the heavenly new Jerusalem. This is described in the verses we read in Hebrews 12. I can just read this part of the, part of the outline. But the new covenant... The heavenly Jerusalem and the church are one. Remember, Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who had left Judaism and were meeting with the church in Jerusalem, mainly in homes. They left the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the law, everything. Now, they were suffering severe persecution, plus pressure from their families. Now it's the Feast of Tabernacles, won't you join with us? Come to the temple with us. And so when they were leaving the church life, they were leaving the new covenant enacted in the Lord's blood. They were going back to the temple to offer animal sacrifices again. They were leaving Christ as the high priest to go back to their priest. They were leaving the real house of God to go to the temple Eventually, God was so provoked, he destroyed the entire city, leaving not one stone upon another. So the writer was burdened to encourage the Hebrew believers, don't retreat, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You leave the church, you leave the New Jerusalem, you leave Mount Zion, you go to Mount Sinai. You leave grace, you go back to the law. 
This was the battle here. To receive the new covenant is to enter the new Jerusalem and come to the church. Hebrews 8 indicates that the old covenant of law has been replaced by the new covenant. The Lord said this. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. It's a New Testament. He came to fulfill the type of the offerings. He himself was the priest offering himself to God. The entire religious system was abolished. A new economy had entered in. And in this new economy, the Son is everything. The real priest, he's the offerings, he's the grace. We have the law of life in us. But the practicality of that is the church life. When they came to the church in Jerusalem, they came to the New Testament. They came to the heavenly priesthood. They came to the reality of the offerings. They came to the law of the spirit of life. When they left it, it's not just a matter of not going to meetings. You are committing a dispensational sin against God's administration by forsaking the New Testament enacted in his blood and going back to religion to save your soul from suffering. So Hebrews 12 says that we have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, to the city of the living God, to the mediator of a new covenant, and to the church. Now for about 10 minutes, with some development of point B, the church is the unshakable kingdom of God. And I'd like to read that verse and it's the surrounding verses again. The writer is quoting Haggai. Verse 26, okay, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For of those who did not escape, who refused him who warned them upon the earth, much more we shall not escape, who turn away from him who warns from the heavens, whose voice at that time shook the earth, but now has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, shows clearly the removal of the things being shaken as being of things having been made that the things which are not shaken may remain, therefore receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us have grace, through which we may serve God, well-pleasing with piety and with fear, for our God is also a consuming fire. So here, the church is referred to not only as the kingdom of God, 
but to the unshakable kingdom. We know our brother Nee, although so subject to illness, was confined, imprisoned for 20 years. He died in victory, a note was under his pillow, referring to the Son of God becoming man. For this I lived and for this I died. His last word was, I have maintained my joy. He was unshakable. Unshakable. The cultural revolution of the 60s couldn't shake him. The imprisonment couldn't shake him. The same was true of Brother Lee. All that he went through, all the opposition, unshakable. The church in its nature is the most secure place on the earth. It's an unshakable kingdom. If God can be shaken, the church can be shaken. The church is structured with the element of God. So A says the unshakable kingdom which we are receiving is Christ with his enlargement. The kingdom is actually the Lord himself as the kingdom within us. See Luke 17, the Lord said, they asked him a sign when the kingdom is coming. He said, you cannot observe the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is among you. Well, who was among them? He was among them. He was the kingdom there. Then he sowed himself as the seed of the kingdom to enlarge himself in us. So the kingdom is Christ as the kingdom within us. Whereas the church is Christ's increase in life, the kingdom is Christ's increase in administration. We shouldn't be selective in our view of the church life. Some may say, oh, I like the church being the household. We come together, it's so pleasant, we're all brothers and sisters. Oh, the kingdom, that involves rulership, that involves government. Well, you can't pick and choose. The church is the many brothers and many sons, it's a corporate partnership, it's the house of God, it's the Sabbath rest. It's a combination of the New Covenant, the New Jerusalem, and the church. And it's a kingdom. The main reason why saints can be in a church life for decades and not be actually built up in a local church is that they are not willing to live a kingdom life. At their core, there's a kind of insubordination. So the church, if it's to bring in the kingdom, must be the kingdom in reality and practicality today. Then we can fight for the kingdom, stand for the kingdom, and pray for the coming of the kingdom. Then be raptured to be the manifestation of the kingdom. 
So we need to learn what it is for Christ to increase in us in his administration. And one aspect of God's administration over us is that he is free to do what he wills without explaining. If a king has supreme authority, you don't ask him to justify his actions. You just meet. That's what Nebuchadnezzar finally met. He collided with that. I'm not the one ruling. The heavens rule. The Lord has the authority. And so there needs to be an increase of Christ in us in his administration. One aspect of the growth in life, the various aspects, is that the growth in life is the subduing of every part of the soul. The subduing. I would point out the difference between being defeated and being subdued. My ancestors came from Finland. I'm not boasting. The Finns are just a tough, vodka-drinking people. They're just tough. They fought many wars with Russia, always lost, because Russia had superior numbers. So they were defeated, but never subdued. Subdued means there's no resistance. So one can be defeated. Even the Lord may defeat you. And you may think that ends it. Okay, you're defeated. But can you say there's no resistance? Every part of your being is subdued. Well, this is a process. Your bright mind your double PhD. I know a brother in one country has got three PhDs. But his mind has been subdued. Your emotion, your mood, your will. Everything has been subdued. Not crushed, but subdued. The Lord has just a delightful way to subdue us. It's not with a rod of iron. The rod of irons for the enemy. He just has a way to keep flowing, loving, dispensing, shining, until you just give in, you surrender. That's when he's increasing in his administration. No resistance. Every part of the soul is subdued. So every part of the soul is under the Lord's administration. In the church, we are living in the kingdom of God today. And I conclude in two or three minutes with just a brief summary as an appetizer. Here I'm deserving giving the appetizer at the end of the meal. It's not a dessert. <clears throat> I don't think God gives us desserts. He just gives us healthy food. Okay. <laughs> the kingdom is not only the rule of God with his authority, 
It's the realm of life. Don't we speak of the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom? Plant kingdom is not some powerful cactus conquering all the other plant forms. The animal kingdom is not some gorilla or orangutan dominating. So these are realms of life. The kingdom of God is a realm of life. I'm happy to tell you some good news. How Paul describes this kingdom. It's the kingdom of the son of God's love. That's the nature of it. God loves the son. This is my beloved son. And whom I found my delight. Now all of you are many sons. And you're together in this kingdom. I love you. The same way I love my son. And the kingdom that I've given to my son, my beloved son, is a realm full of love, light, and life. This is how you're ruled. This is how you're subdued. This is how genuine authority is represented. Not with a whip. Not with an iron rod with a flowing life, a shining light accompanied by covering love. That's the kingdom. Then you realize, what kind of realm is this? Okay, it's a realm of light. It's a realm of love. It's a realm of peace. It's a realm of grace. It's a realm of enjoyment. It's a realm of reality and genuineness. It's a realm of joy. It's a realm of shepherding. It's a realm of building. It's a realm of singing. It's a realm of praising. It's a realm of worshiping. Paul and Silas, were in that realm intrinsically while they were in that prison cell in Philippi. They were in two realms simultaneously. They were in the realm of life, light, love, grace, reality, joy, singing, praise, worship. This is the church as the kingdom. As we become part of this kingdom, just as we're part of the family and part of the house, we are constituted with the unshakable nature of God himself. There will come a time that verse in Haggai will be fulfilled. Everything that can be shaken in heaven and on earth will be shaken. A lot of shaking will come. We're just in the preliminary stages. Everything will be shaken. All the unbelievers, they'll just, they'll have no idea how to handle it. But there's something mysterious about us. We are unshakable. Not because we're strong-willed, not because we're tough guys, Not because we're anything, but because we are part 
of the unshakable kingdom. So the church in its nature is the mingling of God and man. In its function, it's the expression of Christ. It's a composition of the many brothers of the firstborn son, the many sons of God who are humanly divine. We're all partners in the divine enterprise. We're all part of the house of God. Little by little, we'll experience God's rest. I believe when we come to the Lord's table tomorrow, we will come at rest. And when we spend at least a little time to worship the Father, we will sense he's at rest, he's at home, he is satisfied. Then we will see, wow, we are in the New Testament, we are on Mount Zion, we are in New Jerusalem, now we are the kingdom, we are unshakable. Tomorrow morning we conclude with seeing how after Paul presents all of this, in chapter 13, he turns to the actual, practical church life. And we can leave here tomorrow with at least a little light and a little supply to live a church life more delightful and more encouraging than we've ever known before. A church life under the heavenly ministry of Christ. May the Lord open our eyes to show us how blessed we are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us. Thank you, Lord, for ministering yourself into us right now. Remove all the veils from our heart. Show us what the kingdom is. Show us it's the kingdom of the Son of God's love. Show us here you rule by shining, by flowing, and especially by loving. We want to tell you we love you back. We praise you. We worship you. We thank you. We adore you. We say from the depths of our being, Amen, Hallelujah. Continue praying with someone nearby for a minute, then we'll have our prophesying.